When I get up to lecture them, I say, I'm going to give you the lecture I wish somebody had given me 50 years ago when I was a first-year med student. It would have changed every diagnosis I made. It would have changed every treatment plan I made. It's the food your patients are eating. Before you order another $1,000 scan, another $500 set of lab tests, stop. Ask what they ate yesterday. I'm going to take you through an eating day. And if it's full of burgers and buffalo wings and pepperoni pizzas, that's why they're sitting in front of you, doctor. Overweight, diabetic, hypertensive, clogged up and inflamed from what they're running through their bloodstream every four hours. That was Dr. Clapper, one of my favorite plant-based doctors who has inspired me for more than a decade. Dr. Clapper is a general practitioner with a zest for life, full of youthful enthusiasm, and is a picture of health at 74 years old. He is a well-recognized teacher around the world that shares evidence-based nutrition and has decades of experience reversing patients' chronic illness and disease with lifestyle, medicine, integrative medicine, and plant-based nutrition. He has done so much work helping eradicate chronic lifestyle illnesses, and now he lectures at medical schools across the country to empower the next generation of doctors to better heal their patients with plant-predominant nutrition and lifestyle changes to get to the root cause rather than treating the symptoms, all with the Moving Medicine Forward initiative. You can find him at drclapper.com, and it would be so great if you subscribe to his YouTube channel, Dr. Clapper, filled with vital information at your fingertips. I'm very proud to share his wealth of information with you all. Welcome to the Ellen Fisher Podcast. Let's get started. All right, we are on. Thank you so much, Dr. Clapper, for coming on the show today. My whole family has been looking forward to you and your wife's visit, and we are thoroughly enjoying our time here. You are just such a joy to be around, and same with your wife, Elise, as well. So thank you so much for coming here. Oh, well, thank you, Ellen. It's always a joy to come back to Maui, and there's such special magic to be here on this property with you and your family that I'm very appreciative to be here as well. Um, but you've been decades, a decades-long vegan for, what is it, 40 years 40 now? years, 1981. That is mm -hmm. amazing and so inspiring, and you're a pioneer in the plant-based movement, and I know so many people are so thankful for all the wisdom you have to share. So yeah, just thank you again. <laughs> my honor, my and, pleasure. And I gotta tell you, my mom loves you. You are her favorite plant-based doctor. Oh. And you know, I've been vegan for quite a long time now. Nothing that me or my sister ever did really, I mean, she's always been so supportive and loved making us vegan food, but you know, not plant-based herself. It wasn't until last year when she watched an interview with you that just clicked within her and she suddenly was had a spark of passion to become plant-based overnight became plant-based and now she's so passionate she tells all her friends anyone who's experiencing you know symptoms of old age as they've gotten older she's like you gotta go plant-based check out dr clapper and yeah i just thank you oh. <laughs> amazing well good for her that, that, that's great to hear <laughs> totally well let's get into it i wanted to first ask you if you could share a little bit about your vegan story Oh my. Uh, well, it was 1980 when I grew up eating standard Western diet. My mother didn't know, your mother didn't know, who knew back then, and so I ate the standard uh, American fare and that was overweight and had a few health issues. And it was 1981, and I was a resident in anesthesiology at um, Vancouver General Hospital in Vancouver, BC. I was going to be an anesthesiologist, I thought. And uh, day after day, I'm in the operating room and on the cardiovascular service, you deal with people's hearts and blood vessels. So day after day, I'm putting people to sleep and I'm watching surgeons open up their chest and open up the arteries in their heart and pull this yellow guck out of their arteries. 
And I knew what that stuff was. There was already reports in the medical literature. It's largely the fat of the animals these folks are eating. Uh, one day a surgeon pulled out a particularly yellow, slithery piece of uh, atherosclerotic material, and I thought to myself, boy, that stuff looks like chicken fat. <laughs> and the little voice on my shoulder said, there's a good reason why it looks like chicken fat, doctor. It is chicken fat and cow fat, and, and it's the remnants of these, of, uh, these fatty, uh, cholesterol-laden meals that we're eating. And my dad died of clogged arteries. I know I've got those genes. And so I knew I, if I didn't change my diet, I was going to be on that operating table with that striker saw going up my sternum, and I sure didn't want that to happen. So I was getting messages from the, my left brain saying adopt a plant-based diet because there were already studies, as I said, in the literature showing you can melt this plaque away with a plant-based diet. So I was getting uh, intellectually uh, uh, driven to uh, change my diet. What really moved me was something that spoke to my heart. A few months into my residency, I'm out dining with a friend, another anesthesia resident, and I had been striving to live a life of nonviolence. I had seen so much violence in the trauma unit at Cook County Hospital in Chicago. I really wanted to remove the violence out of my own life, at least, if I can free the world of it. And so I studied Gandhi and the Indian saints and uh, these folks to uh, learn how to live a life of, of nonviolence. And I was uh, pontificating about such a lifestyle uh, to my friend while polishing off a T-bone steak at the local Kagan Cleaver. And uh, he was listening with great compassion. So that's all very nice, Michael. But if you want to really get the violence out of your life, you might want to start with that piece of meat on your plate because in in satisfying your desire for the taste of flesh in your mouth, you are paying for the death of this beautiful animal and for the next one in line at the slaughterhouse. Well, as soon as he said that, all the old rationalizations sprang into my head. Well, that's what they raised them for, and the animal's dead already, and, and all of that. But before I could get the words out of my lips, that, that same little voice on my shoulder said, you know, he's right, he's right. And when I went up to pay for the steak dinner, I felt complicit in a crime because I had done a lot of my growing up on my uncle's dairy farm in Wisconsin, and, and I know the reality of putting meat in the table. It's, it's a violent act. No matter how you look at it, I chopped the heads off chickens. I saw the butcher come out and shoot the old dairy cows in the head. And there, there's no way to get meat on the table without causing dreadful harm and death to these beautiful animals who love their life as much as I do. And at that point, I, I, I knew my meeting days were over between what I was seeing in the OR about my own arteries and knowing the greater truth of living a life of compassion. Uh, suddenly, the plant-based uh, style of eating became very, uh, it's, it was the only place to go. I had no choice. And um, so I adopted a vegan diet. Boy, my body loved it. Within 12 weeks, a 20-pound spare tire of fat melted off my waist. My high blood pressure went to normal. My high cholesterol went to normal. I felt great waking up in a nice, lean body every day. And at that point, I realized I didn't want to be an anesthesiologist anymore and spend my life putting people to sleep. I'd rather go back to general practice and help them wake up. And so I did, much to my parents' dismay as I left that lucrative profession behind. But I went back to general practice and uh, found some folks who gave plant-based cooking lessons in the area. And those folks who could hear the plant-based message experienced the same wonderful uh, changes I did. They, they lost weight, their high blood pressure came down, their diabetes got better. 
And that was uh, 40 plus years ago, and I've been a plant-based physician ever since. And uh, and uh, there's, there's nothing else to do. It's the greatest joy in the world to see people get healthy. And knowing that I'm uh, that I'm not contributing to the violence in this world, so um, so I got a big V in my heart there. And uh, the, 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 how, uh, to go into a burger restaurant and order a, a hamburger and eat it is it, just yeah, I, you know, I'd rather uh, flap my arms and fly to the moon. Just I just couldn't do that. Right, and I think it's so interesting how you talk about how it's all encompassing. That's it makes it so much so much more valuable and interesting when you know it's not just for your health, but also for the animals yeah. and how it's lighter on the footprint for the planet. And I think it's so interesting what you said about as soon as it was pointed out that you were, you know, encouraging that with the, the steak on your plate. I think it's so true that people are all against animal cruelty. Everyone is. No one. No one's for animal cruelty until no. it comes to the animals that they're eating. Right. And then you have all the rationale and all the reasons to say why it's okay or why you need it. And since you know through the scientific literature and your own experience as a general practitioner that like you do not need to be eating animals, and no. it actually, in fact, it'll enhance your health. That's why it's like such a testament for this movement. Yeah, we've got, there's this protein myth that's infiltrated into the awareness. You must eat animal flesh every day. No, you don't. Uh, we are basically plant-eating hominids. We've got the same basic digestive system that our gorilla and bonobo cousins have, and they're up in the trees eating leaves and fruits, and they don't develop the diseases we do. And we've got fingers on our hands, not claws. We've got these long intestines for digesting fiber. We've got enzymes in our saliva to digest starch. You know, is that not a clue about, you know, about our, our basic nature here? And when we start eating the flesh of the mountain lion, um, it, it damages us and causes disease. And so, uh, yes, no, the plants are our fuel, and we should eat them. Totally. It's the win. So we know this. You've been vegan for 40 years now. I've been vegan 15 years, had four wonderfully healthy vegan pregnancies. All my children are thriving, our whole family vegan. But what do people need to know about plant food eating? How do you dissect and explain to someone who's new to understanding it? Oh, well, first of all, relax. Uh, you know, I've never had a gorilla in the office saying, Doc, I don't get enough protein. You know, the, the protein are in the whole plant food. Where am I going to get my protein? It's in the grains, it's in the quinoa, and the millet, and the buckwheat. It's in the legumes, the beans, and peas, and chickpeas, and lentils, all green vegetables have protein. All plant foods have protein. And so relax about the protein. Uh, and it's easy people well it's expensive to eat this way no it's not the staples uh, the, the where you get your calories and your protein rice and beans and potatoes are cheap you can buy a 10 pound bag of lentils for 12 bucks and you can eat off that for for a month you know, along with some rice and potatoes and some starches etc so relax about the protein it's not expensive and it's a delicious way to eat. Uh, now, the, once you get the, the calories and the protein covered from the grains and, and legumes, et cetera, then you gotta get your vitamins and minerals. And those are in all the live fresh food. That's, where, that's why you want big salads and hearty vegetable soups and steamed greens, et cetera. And the more color, the better. And if you do that, you're basically covered. And, uh, and it's a delicious cuisine. You can eat it in any ethnic and, and uh, international style you want, you know, Mexican chilies and Asian stir fries and uh, uh, the, all these wonderful uh, variations on the, on the flavors. And uh, the only thing you need to do, um, you've got to get some vitamin B12 in. And people say, aha, well, see, it's a deficient diet. No, it's not. Uh, well, you're not eating meat. And cows don't make vitamin B12, which you need for your brain and your spinal cord. You need some. 
but it, uh, the cow, animals don't make it. No animal makes it. It's made by microbes in the soil. And when we were living Earth-connected lives, uh, you know, a thousand years ago or more, uh, every time we pulled a root out of the ground and ate it, there'd be microbes making B12 on the surface there. We would get our B12, the same place the deer and the antelope get it now. We would, uh, when we were thirsty, we'd find a stream and plop down and drink water from the stream. There'd be B12 in the stream water. When we were connected with the Earth, B12 deficiency wasn't an issue, but now, thanks to modern sanitation, which I'm all for, yeah. <laughs> uh, the uh, the natural sources of B12 have dropped out. Nobody's drinking out of streams. Nobody's eating unwashed vegetables. And so for that reason, if you're a pure plant eater, uh, then yeah, you need something with B12 in it, you know, once or twice a week, either a fortified food or a little B12 drop under your tongue or something. But that should in no way deter anybody from, uh, from right. uh, a food plant-based diet. Right, and even some... Uh, animal farms are injecting B12 into the animals themselves <laughs> these days. So you're still supplementing, you're just like passing it through the animal first. <laughs> yeah, really, it's secondhand B12. Yeah. You know, the animal didn't make it. Yes, totally. Right. So what do you have to say to someone who thinks there's this like rising opinion now that saturated fat is actually good for you, that we need saturated fat? But it's uh, it's not in the in the volumes that we're eating. Yeah, you need a little saturated fat, and that's what avocados are for, and olives, and, and coconuts. You know, and have a piece of coconut, have an avocado. You get all the saturated fat that you need. But that's not an issue, and we now know that saturated fats in large amounts are pro-inflammatory. They fan inflammatory reactions throughout the body and joints and skin and, and connective tissue. So no, you don't need saturated fat in the amount, you know, uh, if you got a T-bone steak dripping with fat, oh, that's good for my body. No, it's not. And, uh, and it contributes to inflammation in the artery walls as well, and folks who eat a lot of saturated fat are far more likely to get uh, heart attacks and strokes. So. Right. Get it out of plants, and again, gorillas, by and large, don't get atherosclerosis, even though they're eating, they might be eating coconuts and fatty foods. Totally. So one of my favorite lines and quotes you've ever had that I've shared multiple times on my social channels is that the human body has no more need for cow's milk than it does for dog's milk, horse's milk, or giraffe milk. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> somehow we got this idea that the, the milk of a cow is somehow beneficial for us, and I have a t-shirt outside saying baby cow's milk is baby calf growth fluid. That's what this stuff is. And it's yeah. full of growth factors and, and hormones. Uh, the cows are all pregnant nowadays. And so it's full of estrogens and progesterone and estradiol. And, and the more dairy a boy eats, the higher his risk of prostate cancer because estrogens make the prostate unstable. The uh, more the dairy a, a young girl eats, the higher risk of precocious puberty and breast cancer. Uh, and yet we've got this idea that the milk of a cow is somehow beneficial. What's in it? Protein and calcium. Well, you get protein out of beans, you get calcium out of greens. We just have no need for this any more than the, the milk of a giraffe. And you know, I say, would you pour dog milk on your cereal? Would you, would you totally. pour a nice cold glass of rat milk and drink that down? We'd go, yuck. Well, what's this with these big bovines? You know, so uh, I haven't drunk, drunk the milk of a cow in, you know, since uh, my 20s, and I haven't missed it at all. And, and nowadays, well, there's all these wonderful plant milk, oat milk and hemp milk and almond milk and soy milk. There's just absolutely no need to, to pour the milk of a cow on your right. cereal. What Let's, was it like growing up on a dairy farm? Well, uh, my... Um, I spent my first 16 summers with my uncle's dairy farm in Wisconsin, and 
I, I really fell in love with cows. They're such sweet animals. But there's a sadness in the dairy barn. Uh, and I would always feel that. I never knew why. But in order for the cows to keep giving milk, the, and people think, oh, cows in the dairy barn giving milk. That's what they do. No, they don't. There's only one reason those big bovines are lactating. They, like all other mammals, they've just had a baby. And in order to keep that milk flowing, you got to keep making those cows pregnant. They carry the calf for nine months. Uh, just like a human mother does. They have their 65-pound baby uh, with much labor, and then they're lactating to feed the child. But my uncle, that calf is the enemy. He's taking that calf, is drinking up his profits. He wants that milk for himself to sell to the dairy. And so within 24 hours, 48 sometimes, my uncle would come and scoop that calf up and put him in the veal pen down at the end of the barn, and that mother cow would bellow. Hour after hour after hour, the most heart-rending, soul-tearing cries. Her, her baby is, you know, 10 yards away in this veal pen, and she can't get to it. And I would hear it. It would haunt me. I was an 8-year-old kid, and in my summer's laying there. I could hear these cows bellow from my bed. And I didn't understand what was going on, but now I understand what's going on. There's such inherent cruelty in dairy production, you, you must be taking those calves away from the babies and from their mothers. And so with all their innocence and, and intentional ignorance on the part of the dairy marketers, every woman who's in the, the supermarket and reaches for that Greek yogurt or that, that cheese she's, and pays for it, she's saying, take another calf away from its mother. You know, let's make another mother suffer. And these cows would be in this stanchion, with these big tears going down their, their cheeks and uh, pictures of it. And I couldn't understand what the, what, where the sadness was, but now I know. And uh, so that was you know, one of the most lasting impressions that I had there. Uh, I had wonderful times on the farm. I was driving tractors when I was eight years old and plowing fields and uh, uh, helping sling hay bales up on the farm, up on the hayloft. And it was a wonderful place to be. But the reality of, uh, of milk and, and meat production, um, we, we had uh, pigs that were shot and cows, uh, old dairy cows would, would get shot. And, uh, and well, it's just the way it is, Michael, my uncle would say. And, uh, but it, now I know it doesn't have to be that way, that whole thing. You know, we used to harpoon whales, you know, and now we go, oh my God, what were we thinking? Well, it should be the same thing with, with the dairy product. Oh, we used to raise these big bovines and then we'd cut their throats and, and uh, eat their flesh. And it, hopefully it'll be in those, I can't believe we used to do that category. I hope so too. I mean, obviously, I, I really feel like dairy and cow's milk is the most obvious non-human feud, just from a mother perspective. And I think a lot of women have made that connection through understanding that. I didn't know growing up, I thought cows just make milk just to make milk, but they make milk for their babies. And just the thought of having your baby torn away after giving birth, it's just the most horrendous thing. And there's really no other way to go about it. I think people have this false sense, this idea that if it's raw dairy or organic and pasture-raised, that that means they're somehow nicer to the cows and the cows get to hang out and drink as much milk as they want. <laughs> but, Nonsense. Yeah. All those cows are destined to have their heads cut off, and uh, and, they, and the baby calves. If you're a male, uh, unfortunate enough to be a boy calf, you're going to spend four months in that little veal pen chained by your neck until your and your flesh gets soft and, and white because you're not exercising, and 
And then, then the veal farmer comes and, oh, I'll take that one. And they cut its throat and sell it for milk-fed veal. But and people don't think that the veal industry, those calves getting uh, killed, is an, is an essential offset, offshoot of the dairy industry. To keep that milk flowing, you're going to keep killing those calves. And, uh, and then people should know they're paying for that, and there's no need for that you know, as anymore, and there never was. But certainly nowadays, there's just no need for it. It's, a, should, it's an antique that should recede into history's dustbin. Totally. What do you think about people who think raw milk is healthier for you, and it's actually good for you if it's raw, just not pasteurized? Well, they're kidding themselves on a number of levels. That um, I'm not saying, you know, you're talking about a, a material at the beginning that doesn't have good nutritional value for us. There's nothing in cow's milk that we need. As I said, protein, calcium, you get that out of plants. Uh, but the uh, why do they pasteurize milk in the first place because cows get tuberculosis and the, the pasteurization was first applied to milk to, to stop because to stop bovine TB because people would drink the milk and back in the 1920s tuberculosis of the stomach was a common cause of death and was coming from the milk and so um, so that's where pasteurization really came from and no it's not gentle with the milk you raise it up to 150 degrees and I'm sure you're going to denature some proteins etc but uh, and so that makes it even you know, a little less desirable. But the substance itself, again, it's meant to fuel a baby calf, and there, and uh, the more dairy a woman consumes, the more uh, estrogen she consumes, the more breast lump she gets. They get fibroids from big uterus. Uh, they get more bleeding. They get hysterectomies. They're, why they would make a stand to uh, that I want my, definitely this is good for me. No, it's not. Uh, you're not a baby calf. If they go look in the mirror, you got big ears, you got snout with whiskers. If you're a baby calf, cool. But if you're not, have oat milk, have rice milk on your cereal. You know? Right, because pasteurizing it doesn't take all that other stuff no, out. No, <laughs> the hormones are still there. The white blood cells are still there. The, the bacteria, still, you know, most of them are still there. Uh, and the hormones are still there. No, there's nothing magical about raw milk. And it's a little bit more dangerous because uh, there's more bacteria in it. Right. So, so I think there's like a divide. And a lot of people, like we all know both sides of the spectrum, whether you're pro-eating animal products or pro-plant-based, that processed foods aren't healthy for us. They're not good right. for us. But I think this other side of the spectrum is saying, well, it's the processed foods that are the problem. Don't blame the animal foods. What's really the process? It's the processed foods. So what do you have to say to someone who's like all about the grass fed and free range and all that and say that that's actually good for us? Yeah, well, two things. First of all, they're kidding themselves on, on a number of levels. Um, I, I totally agree with them. The more we process food, the deader and, and more pathogenic it gets. And the, the frying and the and uh, the chemicals and all that stuff, evil, we agree. Uh, food should be eaten whole as nature created them, I agree. Um, but, and when people change their diets from a, from, a, from a processed food diet with burger buns and Cheetos and all that stuff, to even if they're eating meat and veggies in a, in a clean way there, they're going to feel better. They're going to lose some weight, their bowels will work better, and absolutely, and they'll say, yeah, that's what I ought to be eating. But as the physician who treats chronic disease, as people are eating meat meals, animal muscle, meal after meal, I have to say, what kind of microbes are you spawning in your gut? What, what do you, follow these people along. How much colitis do they get? How much Crohn's disease do they get? What are they doing to their artery walls? You know, for the, they feel great for the first six months, huh? 10 years from now. You know, the doctor's recommending these things. You're gonna, you're gonna be around, 
when um, when this guy in 10 years passes his first bloody stool from the colon cancer that your high meat diet spawned in his gut, well, you won't be around. You're off to your new luxury spa appointment in Phoenix there. You won't even <laughs> see it. This drive-by medical advice. They have no idea what they're really saying and the long-term effects. He's going to be around when 15 years this lady has her stroke from that big old carotid artery plaque that your meat-based diet spawned. We'll be around to see that. But that, but. That's what happens here. We are plant-eating hominids, and a flesh-based diet violates natural law to the extent that we get these diseases, and a high-fat diet makes you insulin resistant, and so they wind up with diabetes, and oh, bad luck. No, it's not. You're clogging up your insulin receptors with all this saturated fat. So all the way around, these, these folks like Dr. McDougall says, people love to hear good news about bad habits. You know, anything that lets them rationalize, oh God, I want to keep eating that meat because they like the taste of steak in their mouth. And that's really what it comes down to. But if you're talking health, you're talking about long-term longevity, you're talking about getting to your 70s. I, I just turned 74. I, I take no medications. I, I go for 30-mile bike rides. I, I just feel great. If you want to get to your advanced years without being a medical patient or, God forbid, having a stroke or a heart attack, then, give, then stop kidding yourself in, uh, that the, the food you're eating through the decades before that doesn't make a big difference. Your, your body's never not looking, you know, there's no kidney, your, your arteries, you know, your liver knows what you ate, your kidneys know what you ate. And, uh, but these folks are kidding themselves because they want to keep, uh, you know, stay in the club of the, of the paleo folks. And, uh, and I'll see them in the clinic. I'll see them in the operating room, unfortunately. And, uh, and that, that's my fear about this and this short-term pleasure for long-term problems. Right. So America is riddled with chronic diseases and illness from diet and lifestyle factors mostly. Why is there so much confusion, especially and even amongst the medical community? And why is it that, you know, someone could say, well, look at this scientific paper. It shows this. And then they'll say, well, look at this one. What is it? How do you how do you weigh both sides? Like I've heard that it was like for every one um, scientific paper showing that plant based eating is healthy or that meat eating is healthy. Then there's five showing that plant based is healthy. Like, how do you how do you sift through it, especially as a layman? It's gotten so muddled. It's like politics these days. Yeah. You know, the same thing. And, and in fact, politics has found its way into, into the science here. And money has corrupted it as well. The, uh, when the, yeah, the nutritional guidelines for Americans are made up by the, the Department of Agriculture, okay? Why is the Agriculture Department making up the dietary guidelines? Um, now, lately, the, um, the food folks, the, the food and nutrition folks have gotten in, but they must run all their recommendations through the, through the Agriculture Department, where the meat and dairy guys sit around the table. Oh, no, you can't say that. No, can't say that. You got to have meat, milk with every meal. You got to have meat with every meal. And so, you know, so that's influence the message we're getting from government and from their scientists um, and money talks uh, you know, some, some famous quote that it's difficult to uh, to convince a man of one viewpoint when he's getting paid to have the opposite viewpoint yes. and uh, so you get that conflict and then you and the studies are, are done you can skew a study easily have too few uh, subjects uh, just pick out certain things that got better, ignoring things that got worse. There's there's ways to skew the presentation to say, aha, see, it's it's a better diet. 
but clearly these diseases were, were treating that clog up the, uh, the emergency rooms, the operating rooms, etc. There are artery diseases, there are diseases of obesity, there's diseases of, of arteries, uh, diseases of uh, hormones, uh, and you didn't used to see these when we were eating largely plant-based diets. And I'm not saying we've always been vegans, but we see they used to eat meat once a week, twice. We couldn't afford more than that. Meat used to be expensive before the government started subsidizing the meat production. And a $2 burger is is an outrageous deception. Uh, if those, totally. if the meat producers really had to pay for the true costs of putting that burger on the table, if yes. they had to pay for the soil erosion, for the water that they pollute, for the water that they use, uh, for the trees that were cut down that, uh, that, that should be growing and, and absorbing carbon dioxide, if they had to pay for all of that, it, these burgers would cost 80 bucks a piece, and, and people would eat them once a year, as they, as they should. And uh, so, so money and politics uh, and ulterior uh, motives have skewed a lot of what we call, what we recognize as science these days. And uh, you're right, and, and the dueling study the conflicts are very unsatisfying, and I really try and stay away, away from that because it doesn't, generates a lot more heat than, than light. Right, because going to common sense, like you take the science, but also common sense and logic plays a huge role in like how I decide what I believe because you really need both. <laughs> you can't exactly. just look at the scientific papers. You got to look at the fact that cow's milk is for baby cows, stuff like that. <laughs> and just the factors of like the politics, like you say, the food subsidies completely distorts reality on what food should cost. The fact that a head of broccoli costs more than a cheeseburger makes absolutely no sense at all. There's no big broccoli lobbying like there is animal agriculture exactly. lobbying. And I think a lot of people just have no clue most a lot of people don't even know that food subsidies exist and that most of them are going towards animal foods or the the grain and the corn to feed the animals yeah, absolutely. and like some of it towards processed foods but largely for the animal food so it, you're right if there was like an act if we had a real understanding of how much these foods should cost and what if they cost the way that they should people would be eating far less animal foods and they have such um, a power within our government and it's unfortunate really but like knowing knowing all this and how it all ties in together for the planet, for how food subsidies have affected our economies and the pollution that happens within animal agriculture from animal poop runoff, from our ocean depletion, all of that together, what do people need to know about how it ties in together with our planet? Oh my, this is the most powerful argument that can exist, that people need to be aware of. And I would urge your viewers um, to get a little book uh, by Glenn Mercer called Food is Climate. And in these few pages, he makes it very clear that we are headed for environmental disaster. Uh, as we all know, the planet is getting warmer, the ice caps are melting, the storms are getting worse, etc. Why is this happening? Well, there's all this carbon dioxide in the air and it's coming from the auto exhaust. Let's get on electric cars and that'll solve the problem. No, it won't. And he makes it very clear. And to Al Gore and Elon Musk and all these folks promoting these technological fixes, they're, they're, they're going to make this much difference. The only thing, if they're talking about taking carbon dioxide out of the air and reversing climate change, there's only one way to do it on any practical level. And it has nothing to do with big machines that suck carbon dioxide out of the air and pump it into the ground. Nature is way ahead of us. She came up with the best carbon capture device of all time. They're called trees. And we should seriously consider this. Uh, and I'm not talking about Boy Scouts out there planting trees. Let's talk some, some real numbers here. 
On planet Earth, before humans started cutting them down, there, are, there were about six trillion trees on planet Earth. Well, in the last, in the blink of a geological eye, in 200 years, 500 years, we've cut down over half of them. We've cut down three trillion, there's less than three trillion trees left. And when you cut down a tree and burn it, you not only uh, release its carbon dioxide into the air, you've taken away this wonderful carbon dioxide trap because as trees grow, they take carbon dioxide out of the air and turn it into solid wood. And, and all we need to do is, Mother Nature, you don't even have to plant the forest. She will, if we stop cutting them down, the trees will come back. And that's all we need to do. Hmm, where are we going to plant three trillion trees? On the land that they used to grow on that you cleared to grow, make pasture land to graze cattle and to make these vast corn and soybean fields to feed the cows and pigs and, that you eat. If we would stop eating animals, it would, not only would we be healthier, but they would free up the land for the forest to come back. And as the trees grow, they take the carbon dioxide out of the air and climate change would reverse. And there is no other solution. It's the one that's the cheapest and easiest. Everybody could choose the bean chili instead of the beef chili. You know, that's all we're saying. You know, it's, there's no great sacrifice here. But just if to, to stop raising, we, you know, we kill 80 billion animals on planet Earth every year. 80 billion cows, pigs, chickens, we, we kill them all. If we stop doing that and, and nourish ourselves on plants that will free up this land, and, uh, and only a half of it that used to grow trees needs to need the, have the forest come back. That would take enough carbon dioxide out of the air to, to stop global warming. That's the only thing that's going to work at this time. And until we come to that, that the, the lights are flashing. Uh, humans as individuals, you want to stay healthy, you want to avoid heart attacks and strokes, stop eating animals. Homo sapiens as a species, you want to keep living on this planet with a livable climate, stop eating animals. The, the lights are just flashing as brightly as they could be. And there's no argument. And the paleo-folk without eating meat three times a day. What planet are you on? Literally, what planet are you on? Not this one that's dying from our carnivory. Our, it's our, our lust for animal flesh that's growing and growing by the year that's going to, 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 to cause our demise and the collapse of our society. And, 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 and the vegans have been saying this for years. John Robbins has been saying this and Diet for New America and Francis Moore LePay and all these folks for, since I got into the movement in the 80s and long before that. But I, as I said, uh, please read Glenn Mercer's book on, on, uh, on food as climate. And there's another little book by Dr. Richard Oppenlander called Comfortably Unaware, which is right where the meat and dairy industries want us. Okay, read those two books and see if the, a hamburger looks the same to you, because that's your children's future. I see your four beautiful children. They're, they're just a delight to be around. But I, I think, my God, when they're my age, what, what is this planet going to look like? And what are we doing to them? What right do we have to steal their future for, for cheap cheeseburgers and T-bone steaks? It's time for us to realize, and with the internet and global awareness now, we, the whole planet can come to this, the age of meat-eating is over. We, we, we've used it up. Whatever f f function, the mighty hunter, and all that mythology, that, that era is done, like whaling, it's done. Fishing, you know, with these massive 10-mile-long nets to scoop everything out of the ocean. We've used fishing up. It's time to let the oceans heal. 
It's time to let the forest heal. It's time to make peace with the natural world. If we do, we'll be granted a Garden of Eden to live in. But the, but the price of, of admission to that stable world is a plant-based diet. And, and again, what is it? Have you, have you have pasta primavera instead of pasta with meatballs? You know, uh, and have it with vegetables instead of, instead of the meat. That's, that's the great sacrifice. You know, our name as a species, Homo sapiens. The word sapient is an English word from the Latin. Sapient means wise, wisdom. Okay, Homo sapiens, the wise one. You know? The one thing we're lacking is the wisdom to know that this costs too much of flesh-based diet, and, and it's time for that to end. And now with all these impossible burgers and all that stuff, I'm not saying they're bastions of healthy food, but it, if, they're, if it's the taste that they want, well, then eat that as a transition food. There comes a point you leave those behind, too. But if, if, if that's what you're looking for, that meaty texture to bite into, then you, you can even have that from plants now. So please, if you care about this planet, if you care about animals, if you care about children, if you care about your future, I've got little good nephews and nieces, and, and I fear for them like I fear for your children. Um, it's time for us to grow up as a species. Someone you know, grab us up and say, listen, time to be to honor your anatomy and adopt a plant-based diet. And if we do that, everything will get better. The, the, the soils will stabilize, the rivers will start running clearer again, the, the climate will, will stabilize, the, the, the forests will come back and we'll be healthier. We won't have tie up our hospitals with, with uh, coronary artery bypasses, et cetera, and there'll be money not spent on health care yes. to fix the roads, put internet in everybody's house, make college free. We could do so much else than so just pay more. for the disease yes. that we're creating with a flesh-based diet. The, the wisdom, are you kidding? The, you know, it's the most unwise thing to do. So, and I know people, oh, vegans, they're all hippies. Huh? Please, listen to the message, listen to the science, listen to the biology, listen to your heart. Um, would you eat raw flesh? Would you ever eat a raw steak? No, you got a cookie out of disguise. It doesn't that tell you. Does your mouth salivate when you see a dead carcass on the ground? No, we're plant-eating creatures. If we just honor that, everything will start to heal. And until we do, we're going to have increasingly worse problems. So. This is a matter of, of life and future. Yeah, I mean, you touched on so many things. I fully agree with you about the, you know, we don't want to see a dead carcass. We don't want to see animals skinned and dismembered. There's nothing appetizing about it to us. That's, just, that's the reason why it's not shown on social media. People don't want to see that. Like, it's just, yes, meat's good for you, but, like, I'm just going to disguise it, and I'm not going to show you the process of it, because it's not, no one likes to see that. And we're not going to take children to a trip to the slaughterhouse. We take them strawberry picking, and we find picking plant foods to be so much more beautiful. And I, I've said this multiple times before, I totally agree with you. And when it comes to, it's interesting how powerful the food subsidies really make a difference. Mm. Because if we're gonna subsidize anything, we should be subsidizing the plant foods that are good for us, that helps right. our healthcare costs, it's good for our health, and it's better for the earth. You know, I think a lot of people don't realize that pl eating plants requires so much less land than if you're eating animal foods, even and especially actually if you're eating pasture-raised animal foods, like pasture-raised cows, they require so much, much land, more land, so much more land. It's completely not sustainable, and especially encouraging people to eat even more of it doesn't make any sense at all. And uh, something even as specific as like animal poop, 
It's just no one thinks about where does that poop go? And because the cows are such large animals and they're feeding them with so much corn and grain that they they have a lot of poop and it's got to go somewhere. It goes they they take so much more poop up than the humans even. We don't even think about that. Like all of that about where it's going, running off into our rivers and lakes and. Um, Oh yeah, there's just so yeah. so many factors. Sure, and this whole regenerative agriculture myth, the, you know, the, again, it's another hoax to make us feel better about eating meat. But the reality is, you know, the uh, the underlying concept is a good one to regenerate the soils. We've not been gentle with the soils, and, and uh, we've just been pumping chemicals into them and sucking feed crops, and, you know, feed corn and soybeans out of them. And the soils are getting depleted in uh, their vitality. And absolutely, we need to regenerate them. And so I'm all for cover crops and crop rotations and no-till agriculture, no pesticides, herbicides. Yay, I'm all for that. But then they say, oh, and, then, and we need to graze the animals, but we keep, need to move them around um, so, so they don't overgraze any area. Um, well, wait a minute. First of all, you know, the illusion of, of grass-fed beef there. Um, they're worse for the environment than the feedlot beef. How, well, how can that be? Because they live a year or two longer. And, uh, and every day those cows are belching out methane, they're breathing out carbon dioxide, they're putting manure on the ground that, that releases methane. Uh, as it degenerates, and they do it for two more years than the feedlot the beef do. They get their throat cut at 16 months. These, these animals will live two to three years. And they require so much more land if they're just grazing um, that uh, you're going to be creating, uh, you're using up more land to create more carbon dioxide and methane for what? Uh, you put a piece of steak on the table. This one's rege grown regeneratively, and this one's feedlot. Can you tell the difference? You're going to guarantee me that 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 the cow that was from, used to be the, on the regenerative farm has been actually rotated around the paddocks? You know, can I tell that in the supermarket? Looking, at, stop kidding yourself. This is all an illusion you know, to keep doing what we're doing. And I keep remembering this, this movie, uh, probably your, your viewers might be a little young, but there's a movie called Thelma and Louise, Susan Sarandon and somebody else. And these two adult women friends get on the wrong side of the law and they wind up killing a guy or whatever and they're fugitives. <laughs> and uh, and they don't, there's nothing else to do and the police are closing in on them. And so they look at each other, they're by the Grand Canyon and, uh, and they hold hands and, and Louise hits the, the gas and they just pitch out into the Grand Canyon. Uh, <laughs> and you know, that's where the movie ends there and then, and then the convertible as they're you know, going into the Grand Canyon. And it seems that's what we're doing now. The, the governments could be doing so much more. Stop the animal subsidies. Start putting ads on TV. Eat plants. They're, you know, if you really wanted to change society, we could do it. But we're just playing Thelma and Louise, and we're going over the cliff. <laughs> and uh, and how dare we do that to to your children and and all the kids and and this beautiful planet. So um, so these folks um, who are you know playing the. Uh, regenerative agriculture game and the grass-fed game and all this stuff, they're all kidding themselves. They're, they're eating death, and, and it's going to be their own, you know, unfortunately, and the death of right. the planet. Right. I think there's a lot. It's um, they try People try really hard to make it seem like it is normal and natural. Right. And because if you do grow up on, like you said, you grew up on a dairy farm, it did feel normal somewhat. Like yeah, it was it hard did. to understand. As a child, we listened to our parents. We, you know, 
understand the world in the best we know how based on growing up or if we're raised to you know think that hunting is fine and oh well I'm actually not disgusted by an animal being dismembered and that's that's really comes from just conditioning and being used to seeing something over and over again which happens in all different kinds of experiences in people's lives Um, but that doesn't if you really get down to the heart of it we know that we want we, we teach children to be kind to animals and in fact if a child isn't is showing tendencies to not be kind to animals, we kind of consider that a concern. Because yeah, we want you to be kind. Oh, oh, be gentle. Be gentle to the cat. Don't don't hurt the kitty's tail, you know. But but here, have some have some eggs, have some have some raw milk and meat and all that stuff. I think it's just there's a disconnect and it's easy because we're so disconnected from the way the world absolutely. used to be for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um so what what about the farmers? What do they do? If more and more people start eating plants and there's like this natural um, demand and shift towards plant foods. What do the animal farmers do? Oh, thank you for that. That's so important. And uh, and it's easy if you're a dairy farmer or a beef farmer to get your back up when you hear that you're going to throw me off my land. You're going to take away my livelihood. No, uh, not at all, sir or madam. Um, the, these folks are not the enemy. They're our brothers and sisters, and they're growing our food for us. They help these people. Then um, all you have to see is you don't have to run cattle and do something else with the land. Grow fruit trees, grow broccoli, grow industrial hemp. If if it if the land, well my my land's all rocky, etc. If it can grow grass enough to to for cattle to graze on, that it can grow industrial hemp. It can grow a whole lot of crops. Um, and and pay these folks, make it easy for them. Take a build a, a couple less aircraft carriers, or close a couple military bases, and take those billions of dollars, and set up the Agricultural Fairness Administration, and help these people. Send them to night school to learn how to grow new crops, buy their seeds for them, buy their equipment for them, you know, give them crop insurance, pay the mortgage on their house for ten years, give, give their kids scholarships to college. Make it easy for them to make the transition. Don't grind them up in the gears of economics here. Help them. They're growing our food. And just say, yeah, my daddy grew cattle for, you know, for, since 1892 on this land. Well, that's, you know, we used to harpoon whales too, but that doesn't mean you still have to do that. Let's, we're, we're bright creatures here. Do something else with that land. Pay them to, to watch the forest. Pay them to be good foresters and promote the, the clean up the streams and, and, and nourish the land. There's so much else we could do. These, these folks are not the enemy they're there to be helped and we could do it well what is it? money and political will is all that it takes and so we need to need to retool re- revision uh, the entire issue of food production and, and change it to swerve it over to the plant-based side and and bring these people along that even goes for yeah like even the farmers growing corn and soy for the animal right Vote for people grow yeah. people crops yeah because a lot of people think that the soy oh soy see soy is bad for the plant but most of it's going towards it's the animal going foods. down to gullets of cows and pigs and yeah. chickens very little of it winds up in tofu and, yeah. and soy burgers i'll tell right. you they're growing animal fodder they're growing cheeseburgers right so let's shift a little bit i want sure. to talk about your moving medicine forward initiative and what you've been doing now it's very exciting and mm-hmm. there's, i feel like it's such a bright it's a shows me a bright future what you're doing right now with you know your next chapter ed- educating doctors for the next generations can you yeah. just tell us about it yeah, absolutely well as a physician as who spent my first 30 years in practice treating diabetes and high blood pressure and clogged arteries and obesity etc you know the, the the penny dropped that this is what from what they're eating of course uh, and and I look at my colleagues in the various especially the cardiologists they're focused on well he needs statins he needs stents and uh, 
But the, all this is coming from what we're eating, by and large, 90% of this. And, and I'm embarrassed, as a physician, I'm embarrassed for my, my profession, that we can, you know, our science is so powerful, we can pick out a genetic mismatch on gene A21, on chromosome 14, boy, we can home in on that with precision. But the thought that, it, that our patients eating cheeseburgers and pepperoni pizzas might be clogging up their arteries, this is somehow too abstruse a concept. We haven't, do we have proof of this? Show me, show me 20 double-blind placebo-controlled studies that show me that eating broccoli is healthier than cheeseburgers. Ah, you don't have those studies? See them, go, go away till you, till you do. <laughs> and uh, people love, and there's an inertia and, and that keeps uh, this ignorance going, and it's ignorance. Uh, and, and the young docs, uh, at this point, uh, somebody, uh, when, I, when I get up to lecture them, I say, I'm going to give you the lecture I wish somebody had given me 50 years ago when I was a first-year med student. It would have changed every diagnosis I made. It would have changed every treatment plan I made. It's the food your patients are eating. Before you order another $1,000 scan, another $500 set of lab tests, stop. Ask what they ate yesterday. To have them take you through an eating day. And if it's full of burgers and buffalo wings and pepperoni pizzas, that's why they're sitting in front of you, doctor, overweight, diabetic, hypertensive, clogged up and inflamed from what they're running through their bloodstream every four hours. And if you change that, it's study, get them on a plant-based, send the patient to the plant-based dietitian, let her do the counseling, let her show them the movies, let her take them shopping. You see them back in a month. And if they've gone plant-based, you'll see they're leaner and their blood pressure's down and they are healthier folks. This is how medicine should be practiced in the 21st century. And in my slide presentation, I put a pretty provocative slide up saying, knowing that how reversible, because these diseases are reversible, it's this most exciting thing in medicine to see the obesity melt away and the, and the arteries relax and the high blood pressure go down, the joints stop hurting and the psoriatic skin clears up and the asthmatic lungs stop wheezing and the migraine headaches get better and they turn into normal healthy people right in front of your eyes that don't need a bunch of pills and potions and procedures. I say, uh, the slide says, you want to heal these people, or don't you? I mean, really, why are you going to medicine? You want to heal them? Or are you just going to be there, see them every month to raise their dose of metformin and, and beta blockers and say, come back in two months? If that's how you're going to practice medicine, you're going to leave medicine. You won't, you'll burn out. This is the most dismal kind of medicine, hopeless medicine. Because you're telling your patients you'll, you'll never get well. You're always going to be diabetic. You're always going to have hypertension. You'll ne you're, you're always going to be sick. What a hopeless message. You want to heal these people? Then get real about what they're eating. And so I show them a slideshow, and I show them how a plant-based diet reverses diabetes, how it cleans out arteries, how it settles down inflamed colons, how it clears up psoriasis, et cetera. And there's more than just going plant-based, but it's square one. You want to heal these people, then get them on a plant-based diet. And as I said, I wish someone had told me that. So I've been going around to the nation's medical schools uh, through North America, I'm in Canada, Mexico, and Australia, New Zealand. Um, I'm going to be in December. I'm lecturing over at Burns Medical School in Honolulu, uh, and, and giving this message. And it's getting easier because it is the 21st century. And when I step up to the microphone, 
um, and I've got a bunch of med students there, I know that in every medical school class, every first, second, third year med school class, there's 20 or 30 students, they've seen movies like Forks Over Knives, they've seen Cowspiracy, they've seen What the Hell, The Lights On, and most of them, they're ahead of me here a little bit, and it's wonderful, and they're very receptive to the message. And they say, I wish my professors were telling me this. So our Moving Medicine Forward initiative uh, is to get me in front of as many medical school audiences as possible, to, to turn on as many lights in these heads, because you know, they say once you look behind the curtain, you can't pretend you don't know what's behind the curtain. You know? and, and I'm trying, trying to rip the curtain down. It's the food. <laughs> it's what your patients are eating. Start there. The students want to hear this. They know that they are sincerely want to get their patients healthier. And many of them, again, are not only open to the plant-based message, many of them are vegan now themselves. They're getting more and more of those. And if any of your listeners would like to see what it is I'm actually telling students, go to my website, drclapper.com, and, and click on Moving Medicine Forward, uh, and see my video called What I Wish I Learned in Medical School About Nutrition. And that's what I tell the students. And, and at the end, I say, now, now you know what I wish I had learned in medical school about nutrition, and now you know it as well. And the students are getting more and more excited. I'm getting more and more invitations. I'm doing more of it electronically now. I gave this talk at the University of Buffalo last week um, at Yale. I gave it at the uh, uh, University of California, San Diego two weeks ago. Uh, and I'm able to do uh, drop into these various uh, medical audiences from, from afar. And it was discouraging uh, not to be able, due to COVID, to actually be in front of these students because that's such a you get such great energy from, right. from the live audience. But uh, it's kind of a silver lining from the COVID virus that I'm able to reach so many more students now and uh, visit so many more medical schools from my own living room uh, right. by uh, the magic of electronic medium. So uh, this is moving medicine forward. We could sure use some help. Does it cost money to, yeah, how do we uh, support it? to pay staff, et cetera? And if people would like to make a tax-deductible donation, again, uh, go to drclapper.com, click on moving medicine forward, and you'll see uh, how you can make a donation there. We'd be very appreciative for Perfect. any help. Perfect. Mm -hmm. That's really helpful to share that information. Uh -huh. um, and I'll definitely be putting the link to his website below for you to check out so you can look into that. So, okay, why is it that medical schools don't teach this stuff? That don't, don't, why do they not learn anything, little to nothing, about nutrition? It's, it's embarrassing. And, and again, I could be a little cynical in the fine hand of the pharmaceutical industry. They don't, really don't want to see people getting really, really healthy. They, you know, they're going to sell a lot less drugs. And they have a big influence about the curriculum. And, um, and I gave a talk that the, uh, the, at the University of Washington, Seattle, and a, and a surgeon came down afterwards and said, you know, good, good talk, Doc. Glad to hear this. But, you know, until they start asking about nutrition on the national board exams, we're not going to be teaching this. And he's right. And uh, so we went to the National Board of Medical Examiners and said, what will it take for you folks to, uh, uh, to ask about nutrition on the boards? And he said, well, we don't know anything about it. So, uh, so I said, you bring us the questions. So the, I went to, I'm a member of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, and there's a committee now making up a thousand questions on diet and lifestyle to bring to the uh, national board folks, and they're gonna start putting them on the exams, and that's gonna start turning the wheel there. 
And, uh, and again, the doctors are, you know, they've got this image that if, if those smart scientists in the lab come up with a mesocillin, you know, it's just a matter of time before we can come up with a magic pill and restore health. And, and they're kidding themselves. It's lazy medicine. You yeah. got to get down to the cause of disease. And that's uh, what, what are, how we're eating and how we're living our lives. So um, it's, you know, you can tell the pioneer from all the arrows in the back there, you know, and, uh, and so I'm, we're still in that stage. But there's nothing else for me to do at this stage in my career except help the young medical students awaken. So I want to create a, a, a new generation of nutritionally aware doctors and dentists and pharmacists and podiatrists and nurses and physical therapists and occupationalists through all the health professions. Uh, once a month, uh, we have our plant-based clinical nutrition forum, and people are welcome to, to join. Every month, I have a new uh, guest on from the, from the healing professions, and we talk about how plant-based nutrition plays a role in whatever healing discipline they are in. And so it's an exciting time uh, to, to see these powerful modalities, plant-based nutrition, be incorporated into people's actual lives and their medical practices. So we want to help that happen as much as possible. And you know, the hundredth monkey phenomenon that, uh, you know, when the hundredth monkey learns to, uh, a, uh, a new behavior, all the monkeys, learn, you know, start acting in that way. Right. And so I think we're about monkey number 82 or so. Uh, yeah. yeah. So we're, we're getting there, but I totally. still got a, a bunch more monkeys to convert yet. Making uh, progress for sure. You're doing so much. It's amazing how much in your last decades that all that you've done and now this which seems so impactful it's really going to make a change as opposed to just like one-on-one -on -one, talking to a doctor here and there being right. a good example you're actually speaking to doctors and how do they continue to learn after your lecture absolutely uh, the last third of my slideshow is filled with all the resources that are available for to them and, and i say go to these websites go to pcrm physician committee for responsible medicine uh, the university of winchester in the uk has a six week course on plant-based nutrition. Take that course online. Uh, there, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine has a rich uh, library of continuing medical education courses. It's free for the taking. There's so much. And uh, now uh, there's an organization called the Plantrition Project, which encourages plant-based nutrition-based uh, physicians to uh, collaborate and uh, they have, until COVID came along, our annual meeting, we with 2,000 doctors from around the world, from England and Ireland and India and Malaysia and Argentina, they would come and they're all, the plant-based light is on in all these doctors' heads and hearts and to, to see them excitedly talk about this, it, it fans this wonderful flame that's starting to get brighter and brighter. So you're, I tell the doctors, you're not alone. This is not woo-woo California stuff. This right. is solid science. And there's a lot of clinicians. There's plant-based cardiologists or plant-based pathologists, plant-based radiologists, name it. The, you know, it's the lights going on in all these physicians' heads. So uh, come and join the party and yeah, get on board because it's going to take you to good places. You'll see your patients get healthy. And that's why you went into the healing professions to begin with. Isn't it doctors? Isn't it, isn't it nurse? And so it's an exciting time, but there's a lot of, a lot of darkness to push away, but you know, it's better to 
light a candle than right. to curse the darkness. So right. we're trying to light a lot of candles. That's amazing. Because I do think a lot of people have poor experiences with doctors. Oh. Like it could be just a pill for every ill oh. and not really getting to the root cause. Exactly. How can I change things? But I do have hope that it will change. As much yeah. as it's hard because there is so much corruption within our, you know, what they're from what they're taught in medical school to the food subsidies and to all the government corruption that there is, unfortunately. I do see hope with, with the type of things that you're doing to help change it. And maybe in the future, just maybe, we'll be prescribing more like diet and lifestyle yes. factors than we will as many um, Absolutely. pills. <laughs> in my lecture, I say you at least owe your patient a, a four-page handout. Yeah, You want to reverse your diabetes, you want to reverse your high blood pressure, here. Go to these websites, see this video, read this article, and then call Ms. Smith, the plant-based dietitian. Go see her, and then you come back and see me. And, uh, and, and by the way, what did you eat yesterday? You know, well, well, how beautiful to have a physician say those words yeah. to you at your, yeah. at your visit. So that's what we're trying to create a generation of doctors yeah. who, who have that awareness. And we're getting there. Because it puts the control back into you. You don't feel so helpless. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know, oh, I can actually help this. I'm not just going to manage my type 2 diabetes the rest of my life. I could potentially reverse this. Like, yeah, absolutely. That's powerful information for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So lastly, let's talk about this other thing that you're doing, yes. which is also amazing, which is your plant-based telehealth. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I'm still a practicing physician, and I love working with patients. But uh, due to COVID and also just the reality of, uh, of Western medicine these days, uh, we've gone online. And so now I do telemedicine exclusively. And our organization is called plantbasedtelehealth.com. And if people would like to have a consultation with me personally, I'd love to hear from you. And so go to plantbasedtelehealth.com. I'm sure you'll see it down below here. Uh, and you can, we've got uh, nine physicians. They're all plant-based and they're all excellent clinicians. And if you can't get an appointment with me, uh, take one of our other physicians, depending what state you live in. Uh, and uh, and it's one of the most exciting, fulfilling kinds of medicine. I never thought I would enjoy electronic medicine, but you can tell a lot from just looking at the patient and hearing them, listening and asking asking questions. And then we can prescribe lab tests and prescribe medications and you know we practice medicine. Yeah. Uh, but it's plantbasedtelehealth.com. And and I would love to uh, hear from your viewers and uh, and take them on as patients. Yeah, because that that is super super cool not only but also empowering because I think a lot of people they might feel really alone they're learning about all this information like oh that doctor he's so far away how will I get this information how can I get one-on-one -on -one help but now with the telehealth that's absolutely. makes it possible absolutely so special okay so I have one more question for you sure. my mom wanted me to ask okay. you okay she said so she first of all she's listened to all your interviews she sees your passion she just so loves to hear from you and loves everything that you have to say and she wants to know what keeps you going and motivated and like not giving up out of frustration oh my um my love for life and love for the natural world and to um the the buddhists have a concept of the bodhisattva uh, the bodhisattva what, what does he do he you relieve suffering wherever you find it and as a physician, that's my calling. I relieve suffering wherever I find it. And it's just in my heart and spirit, whether it's an injured animal or a crying child, whatever it is, that, that, that impulse that makes you want to just scoop them up and take care of them and comfort them. That's what I want to do to the whole planet and to everybody I see and to the animals. Uh, it's that, uh, that desire to, uh, to protect and to heal uh, on big levels and small levels. Um, it's in my heart and every morning it's there and brighter and stronger. So that's what gets me out of bed and uh, puts me back to sleep at night with a smile on my face. That's so beautiful. I mean, it, it really has, that to me that screams purpose, you know, which is part of the blue zones, one of the nine 
nine lifestyle factors that right. you know, purpose and Absolutely. i i can 100 percent agree with you on that it really is super fulfilling following your passions and your purpose and hopefully leaving this place better than it was when you got here. Yeah, absolutely. So, I owe it to your children. Aw, yeah, so well I'm working they, for the kids and the animals. I mean, it's partly to you from all that I've learned from doctors mm. like you, so that I have such healthy, vibrant children. So oh, thank you. beautiful. You Aww. are so welcome. Thank this you. This made me I, so happy. I salute you. <laughs> thank you so much for this conversation. I could not be more elated and so thankful whoever's listening got to hear you speak and share all of your knowledge. So. I guess we'll end it. Well, fair enough. This is amazing. Uh, or we'll continue on. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Thank making you. a healthier world. That's right. Thank you, Dr. Clapper. Thank you, Ellen.